Support for Living on Earth comes from listeners like you. Please make a donation online at LOE.org or call me at 617-629-3638. And thanks. From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. In Denver, Democrats pass the torch to Barack Obama. He accepts the presidential nomination and promises green jobs to get America back to work. And I'll invest $150 billion over the next decade in affordable, renewable sources of energy, wind power and solar power, and the next generation of biofuels, an investment that will lead to new industries and five million new jobs that pay well and can't be outsourced. And while the presidential hopeful makes mile-high promises, his running mate Joe Biden skewers the record of the GOP's presidential candidate, John McCain. John voted again and again against renewable energy, solar, wind, biofuels. That's not change. That's more of the same. We'll have that and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. The bunting is gone. The Obama signs packed up. The barriers taken down. The delegates to the Democratic National Convention went home from Denver with renewed calls for change and unity. And those concerned about the environment and energy found climate change in the list of top priorities cited in the historic acceptance speech of nominee Barack Obama. I will build new partnerships to defeat the threats of the 21st century, terrorism and nuclear proliferation, poverty and genocide, climate change, and disease. And with the state of the climate clearly linked to the state of the nation's security and economy, Obama declared there is now a great opportunity to find low-carbon ways to put America to work. As president, I will tap our natural gas reserves, invest in clean coal technology, and find ways to safely harness nuclear power. I'll help our auto companies retool so that the fuel-efficient cars of the future are built right here in America. And Barack Obama is prepared to pour in taxpayer money. And I'll invest $150 billion over the next decade in affordable, renewable sources of energy, wind power and solar power, and the next generation of biofuels, an investment that will lead to new industries and 5 million new jobs that pay well and can't be outsourced. With me now is Living on Earth's Jeff Young, who spent a week at the convention. Hi there. Hey, Steve. Now, Jeff, in past election cycles, environmental activists have complained that the issue of global warming didn't get the attention it deserved. I guess this year's kind of different, huh? Absolutely. And, you know, it's it's almost not even a quote-unquote environmental issue by itself anymore. I think there's that connection between climate concerns, energy costs, the economy, national security, all tied up together. And collectively, those things are right near the top of voter concerns and so, of course, getting a lot of play in the campaign rhetoric. All right, so now the Democrats have recognized the problem, what do they propose doing about it? Well, Obama has long had a, a detailed platform on climate change and clean energy. And here it is in a, in a nutshell. It's a cap-and-trade system to bring greenhouse gas emissions down 80% by mid-century. That with major investments in alternative energy and some sort of immediate relief for the people who are hit hardest by high fuel prices here in the short run. 
and nearly all of the major speakers at the convention hit at least some of those points. Let's hear a little sampling of some of those green moments in the big speeches. It just so happens that the climate crisis is intertwined with the other two great challenges facing our nation, reviving our economy and strengthening our national security. The solutions to all three require us to end our dependence on carbon-based fuels. We need a president who understands we can't solve the problems of global warming by giving windfall profits to the oil companies while ignoring opportunities to invest in the new technologies that will build a green economy. It's not a question of either wind or clean coal, solar or hydrogen, oil or geothermal. We need them all to create a strong American energy system, a system built on American innovation. Now, Jeff, I recognize two of those voices, of course, Al Gore and Hillary Clinton, but uh, who was the last voice we heard from? That was Montana's governor, Brian Schweitzer. And I'll tell you, he really got the delegates fired up about energy issues. Yeah, but his message was a little different from the others. I mean, Al Gore and Hillary Clinton are talking about green energy and bashing big oil. Governor Schweitzer says we need more oil and more coal. That's right. And, you know, that points to a real sort of tug of war that was going on just below the surface here in Denver as the Democrats were trying to strike a balance on energy. They very much want to reach out to states like uh, Governor Schweitzer's Montana, where people dig coal and drill oil, but also have a lot of potential for wind and biofuels. Same kind of story in, say, Virginia, very important electoral uh, state. Former Virginia Governor Mark Warner, who is now running for the Senate, uh, gave the convention's keynote address. And, you know, Warner supports expanding offshore drilling. So people like Warner, Schweitzer, other moderates from energy-producing states, they want the party to compromise. They know they're getting hurt by Republicans who have very effectively seized on the issue of high energy prices with a pro-drilling message. And uh, those moderate Democrats want to respond with a message that says yes to some drilling, yes to some coal, yes to a lot of green energy, too. Sort of a, an all-of-the-above message. Uh, you know, somehow I get the impression that's not going to play too well with the greener elements of the party. What do you think? Well, not at all. And uh, there is quite a bit of tension within the party over this. Uh, and we heard some pushback against any kind of expansion of drilling from some top Democrats, including Harry Reid of Nevada. He's the Senate's majority leader. The simple fact is that the promise of more oil isn't part of the solution. It's part of the problem. At best, this is an 18th century answer to a 21st century crisis. At worst, it's pure baloney. So, you know, this is not uh, an issue where all the Democrats are on the same page just yet. And I think it's going to be interesting to see uh, what kind of message Obama and Biden decide they're going to emphasize. Now, uh, Senator Obama used the convention to showcase his running mate, longtime Delaware Senator uh, Joseph Biden. Of course, part of the vice president's candidate's role usually is to go on the attack against the opposition. And Joe Biden certainly did just that. He, he went after Republican nominee John McCain's environmental record. Even today, as oil companies post the biggest profits in history, nearly a half a trillion dollars in the last five years, John wants to give him another $4 billion in tax breaks. That's not change. That's the same. And during the same time, John voted again and again against renewable energy, solar, wind, biofuels. That's not change. That's more of the same. 
So, Jeff, what do you make of that? Well, you know, I think it's interesting because, you know, McCain has really been an advocate for cutting greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, but as Biden pointed out there, uh, he, Senator McCain, has not voted for the kind of government support for alternative energy that a lot of people in the green field want to see. In fact, he missed some very critical votes this year. So, you know, Democrats are going to try to draw sharp distinctions by digging down into the McCain record, make him seem kind of like President Bush, too cozy with big oil, uh, that sort of thing. Now, Joe Biden has spent a lot of time on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, most recently as chair. Um, Mitra Taj spoke with Darren Samuelson. He's a senior reporter for the online environmental news service Greenwire. Senator Biden is, of course, very well known for his foreign policy leadership in the Senate. What can you tell us about his environmental record? Well, as the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee for the last um, two years, he's been a leader in trying to prod the Bush administration into taking a more proactive approach in uh, international global warming negotiations and actually holding hearings in the Senate committee that he's in charge of to uh, put the spotlight on uh, all the international complexities of climate change. And that means thinking about how um, rising temperatures and rising seas and, and the effects in developing nations could have on U.S. national security. He's been getting senators from the Democratic and the Republican side to try and get them to go and attend these, these huge international United Nations-led talks that take place all around the, uh, the world over the course of any one year. You know, in 2001, President Bush essentially pulled the United States out of um, the, uh, the Kyoto Protocol process. And when the Republicans were in charge of the Senate, and Biden was the, the top Democrat on the committee, he was um, a leader in trying to pass this, this very uh, important, though it's a non-binding resolution, it's, it's nonetheless important Senate language, trying to push the United States back to the negotiation table. And it's helped to um, politically move the ball forward and, and get the rest of the world um, up to speed that beyond President Bush, there is other things that can be done by the United States Congress and, and by U.S. policy to ultimately come around and reduce emissions. Could he be more successful as a vice president than as a senator? Absolutely. As a vice president, as we saw with uh, with Dick Cheney here in, in the last eight years, um, a vice president certainly can have a lot of influence in, in how policy is shaped. And as a, as a statesman, as someone who has been in the Senate for more than two decades, he knows what it takes to get legislation through, and he knows what it would also take, very importantly, to uh, get a treaty ratified. And, and ultimately, that's the goal in the international climate negotiation process, is to get a treaty in place um, in the 2012-2013 time period that would be ratified by the United States Senate, which takes 67 votes, which is a huge hurdle to overcome. And as the former chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, uh, Senator Biden, if he was the vice president, would certainly know what levers would need to be pulled to try and make that happen. That's Darren Samuelson of Greenwire speaking with Living on Earth's Mitra Taj. So, uh, Jeff, tell me, how would Joe Biden do as president of the Senate? You know, that's one of the official duties of the vice president of the United States. We never know. He, he might end up casting the deciding vote on an energy or climate change issue. I think we know they're, they're going to be very uh, hard-fought battles. And it's a little ironic that, you know, here we have candidate Biden on the attack against Republicans on this issue, but uh, Senator Biden really worked very well with Republicans on climate change, partnered with the, the top Republican on the Foreign Relations Committee. And if there is an Obama-Biden administration, he's going to have to return to that bipartisan mode if he really wants to get anything done. And uh, what about before the election? Uh, won't Joe Biden and Barack Obama have some problems getting their own party in line on the green agenda? 
Uh, that, that may turn out to be just as tough. There's a real diversity of opinion on energy issues among Democrats, and I got a sense of that by walking around the floor and talking to delegates from different states. I asked them, uh, what do you think Obama's top priority should be as president when it comes to energy and the environment? All right, let's listen to a sample of that. So my name is Representative Lindsay Holmes, and I am uh, from Anchorage, Alaska. You know, I think at this point in time, the top priority's got to be renewable energy. It's got to be energy security and weaning us off fossil fuels and on to the great renewable potential that we have here in in, uh, in the U.S. You know, and we are an oil and gas state, and even up there, we got plenty to spare at this point. But even we are, are putting huge efforts into renewables and really weaning ourselves off the dependence on foreign oil. I'm Frank County, Mayor of City of Des Moines. We can create a lot of green jobs around this country by urging uh, conversion to energy efficient buildings and residences and commercial buildings and save a lot of the uh, uh, greenhouse gases that are emitted from coal plants. We have to switch to renewables and off of fossil fuels and that ought to be one of our absolute top priorities. My name is Charlene Marshall and I'm from Morgantown, West Virginia. Of course, I'm hoping in energy that he is going to be working with West Virginia and that w because we produce so much coal. And um, we're just in the process of building a, uh, a finery in uh, Moundsville, West Virginia for coal liquefaction. And I'm hoping that he will come to the table and that we'll be able to do some things with the coal and that will produce some much needed jobs throughout West Virginia. Thanks, Jeff. We'll come back to you in a bit. Uh, just ahead, the greening of the Democratic platform. You're listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Jobs, jobs, jobs. In a year when many people are losing their homes to foreclosure and take-home pay is being shrunk by high gas and food prices, there's nothing like the promise of a good, secure job to warm the heart of the average voter. And the Democrats certainly didn't miss that trick at their convention. Speaker after speaker echoed the promise of new jobs linked to energy and cleaning up the environment as outlined in the party platform. It reads, and I quote, we Democrats commit to fast-track investment of billions of dollars over the next 10 years to establish a green energy sector that will create up to 5 million jobs. This transition to a clean energy industry will also benefit low-income communities. Joining me to talk about how an Obama presidency would affect the green economy is Phil Angelides. He's the former state treasurer of California and chair of the board of the labor and environmental lobbying coalition known as the Apollo Alliance. Mr. Angelides, welcome to Living on Earth. It's great to be with you. Thank you for having me on today. What kind of jobs are we talking about? To someone who's listening to us, uh, what kind of jobs should they be thinking maybe they'll get or maybe their kids might get? I think the jobs we're talking about can be anything from skilled workers building trades who are making buildings more energy efficient or installing solar panels to Americans who are working to uh, uh, improve our power grid uh, to Americans who are building the public transportation systems of the 21st century to people working in auto factories making fuel efficient vehicles to scientists and engineers who are developing energy efficient products for the marketplace. There's a whole range of jobs across uh, the economy that can result from this conversion away from an oil economy to a clean energy economy. And if I, if I come from a low-income neighborhood where people don't have a lot of education or a lot of opportunity, what's in it f for us? 
What's in it, hopefully for all Americans, including folks in low-income communities, is the possibility of an economy of broadly shared prosperity. Part of our agenda, part of the next president's agenda, has to be to reach into those communities, to train people, to educate people, to give them the skill sets, not only to compete for, but for win, to win the jobs in this new green-collar economy all over this country. There are the beginning signs of a new commitment to provide pathways out of poverty. And I will just say clearly that at the Apollo Alliance, we do not believe this clean energy revolution will be whole unless there's the possibility for the poorest Americans in inner city neighborhoods or rural areas to be part of this new green economy. We won't have been successful in our goals because this is about confronting climate change, it's also about restoring the notion of broad-based prosperity in the American economy, a notion that's been eroded now for four decades. So how confident are you that an Obama administration would be willing to go up to Capitol Hill, reach in the pocket, and spend these many, many, you're talking about hundreds of billions of dollars, uh, on this sector of the economy and on retraining? There are a lot of competing issues. I'm thinking of health care, Social Security. It's a big price tag. Well, Obama's made a very firm commitment in his platform. In fact, he's the first candidate I can ever remember running TV ads across the country as part of his campaign, making a clear commitment to invest in our uh, industries and in our communities and our peoples to build the new green economy. And I want to say something here in terms of how we pay for this. The fact is a lot of money we spend today can be redirected so it's better spent creating green collar jobs. We spend a lot of money on transportation and housing for example, that needs to be spent in a way uh, that supports the new green economy. Hopefully we can also put in place a what we call a cap and invest program where we charge polluters for putting carbon into our atmosphere and we take the money that we charge those polluters and we redirect that money to make investments in research and development and education and reindustrialization here in America to support the green economy. Phil Angelides is the former state treasurer of California and ran as the Democratic nominee for governor. He's now chairman of the board at the Apollo Alliance. Thanks so much for taking this time, Phil. My pleasure. Now, for many of the most ardent environmental advocates, jobs are just the beginning of what they would like to see in a green revolution in America. At the core of this is the threat of climate disruption from the burning of coal and oil and its links to the current economic difficulties. Among the Democrats in the House who are the greenest advocates is Jay Inslee of Washington State. He's on the House Committee on Energy and Commerce and the Select Committee on Energy Independence and Global Warming and joins us to discuss the Democratic platform. Thanks for appearing with us, Congressman. You bet. Um, in your book, Apollo's Fire, Igniting America's Clean Energy Economy, you tackled the alternative energy challenge. Now, how does this Democratic platform that's been adopted uh, measure up to the plan that you outline in your book? Well, I'm, I'm thrilled. I've been waiting now for uh, at least half a decade for uh, Democrats uh, to lead the country to an optimistic energy future based on clean energy. And I think the moment has arrived. It, it's The planets have just aligned perfectly where the technology of these new clean energy uh, from solar thermal to photovoltaic to enhanced geothermal, they've all arrived. The science of global warming is absolutely consensus and clear as a bell. And now we're going to have a president who gets at heart and soul who's really going to ask America to lift their sights. And I think fundamentally, uh, Senator Obama and the Democratic platform believe that it's a moment where we should stop looking just below our feet for energy 
and start looking above our shoulders and between our ears because that's where the infinite source of energy is, which, which is American ingenuity. And this platform and this president is going to deliver on that message. It's a can-do optimistic message. And, uh, you know, optimism always wins in this country. Speaking of beneath our feet, uh, in your book you said that, uh, well, coal can be compressed into a diamond, but, you know, diamonds aren't necessarily a girl's best friend when it comes to the environment. You point out a lot of dangers from coal. This platform is really vague about coal, Congressman. At one point it says we need to, quote, clean up our coal plants. But, I mean, what does that mean and and, and what should be done? And, And how does that meet your expectations for a clean energy future for America? I think it's real clear that there is no silver bullet, that we have to embrace all technologies that have the potential to be zero CO2 emitting clean energy technologies. And so none should be ignored and all have to be embraced in the in the research and development platform. We don't know which one of these technologies will be dominant. Some of them may not succeed, and it's like any investment strategy. We need to uh, be prudent and not put all of our eggs in any one basket. We, here's one caution, though. We are not going to allow uh, the budget for coal, even though it is now a dominant source of energy, to overwhelm the budgets for solar, wind, geothermal, lithium-ion batteries, and the rest. We have got to have a distribution of the research pie, if you will, oriented to the potential of these new technologies, not their historical uh, artifact. And that will be a debate in uh, in Congress in the upcoming session to make sure we have an adequate research budget based on the future, which are these truly clean, renewable sources like solar, wind, and the like. And that's a direction this country is worthy of. There's a quote that says, quote, we must end the tyranny of oil in our time. Um, and my question to you is, how does any president deal with this? If, if you look at the Fortune 500 uh, listing of the top 10 companies in the world, six are oil companies in terms of revenue, and the top five most profitable companies are oil companies as well. So, I mean, how does a president of the U.S. take on what's arguably the most profitable and powerful industry on the planet? Well, Senator Obama isn't doing this rhetorically. He's already stepped up to the plate and gone nose to nose with the oil and gas industry which has been tyrannical in a sense in Washington, D.C. It has driven the agenda lock, stock, and barrel during the Republican domination of two oil men in the White House. And I think that was most apparent when we had a vote, which we passed in the House, that would reel back in about $20 billion of unjustified subsidies of the oil and gas industry. It's not like these companies are hurting right now and they need Uncle Sam to help them. And would have put that money into a clean energy fund for solar and wind and lithium-ion batteries and plug-in electric hybrid cars to help consumers get efficient vehicles. Now, this was a fundamental defining moment in the U.S. Congress about whether we were going to finally break the shackles of oil, which has stymied progress in clean energy to debate. And we had, interestingly enough, our two uh, candidates for president were tested at that moment. And Barack Obama stepped up to the plate and hit it out of the park and voted to reel back in that money from oil and gas and put it into a clean energy future. His opponent, Senator McCain, was AWOL. He was in Washington, D.C., but he didn't vote. We needed one vote. The country needed Senator McCain to step up to break this filibuster. We had 59 votes. We needed one more senator to change the course of the country, and Senator McCain was AWOL. Now, if that is not a defining difference between these two candidates, I don't know what it is. It was replicated in the vote on the renewable portfolio standard, where Senator Obama voted for a 15% standard for clean energy of solar, wind, and the like for electricity. Senator McCain voted with the oil and gas industry, 
and voted against that. So I got to tell you, when I saw Sitter McCain's ad the other day with wind turbines in it, I went through the roof. My wife had to peel me off the ceiling that here's a guy that stuck a dagger in the heart of a new idea for clean energy, voted under the thumb of oil and gas, and now pretends to be a leader on this subject. We need Senator Obama on this. It is a clear choice, and I think you can see which side I'm uh, I'm fighting on. (laughs) Uh, Congressman, um, let's assume for a moment that Senator Obama is deeply, deeply committed to dealing with climate change, as he says. How high a priority is it going to be for him when he gets into office? In particular, I'm thinking of the next round of negotiations for the Kyoto process. Now, the rest of the industrial world has agreed on limits in greenhouse gases, and the next round of those negotiations must be completed by December of next year, but de facto really by June of next year, because these international processes you know, have a long lead time. Uh, to what extent do you think he's committed on day one coming into office, getting the mechanisms in place so that the U.S. can negotiate and have a clear position that the rest of the world will accept by... June of his first year in office. Well, it is going to be a challenge for any new president and new Congress for us to do very quickly. We only have a matter of months to to really reverse course. But I believe this guy has what it takes to cut the mustard, and I'll tell you why I believe this. Number one, he has already shown his chops on this issue. He has already demonstrated a very aggressive, bold plan. Uh, he's asked for a 100% auction of, for polluters to have to pay for pollution. He's got an aggressive position on what the CO2 cap has, uh, will be. So I think he's already sort of confronted the oil and gas paradigm. And I think in listening to him, he understands that the need for this technological transformation is, is absolutely imperative. You know, uh, Al Gore uh, gave us a challenge of decarbonizing our economy, you know, in, in 10 years or so, which is an ambitious program. But it isn't Al Gore's timeline. It's Mother Nature's. So what we have is a perfect alignment of the planets together with a moment in history. You know, if we didn't have John F. Kennedy... In May 1961, we have not gone. We would not have gone to the moon, and we're going to need Senator Obama in office on January 20th, 2009, if we're going to create a new technological revolution. And I think we're going to get that. And boy, I've been waiting for it for over a decade. Jay Inslee is a Democrat from Washington State. Thank you, Congressman Inslee. Thank you. Perhaps it's a sign of the times that both the Democratic and Republican national conventions this year are being powered by wind, and not just from the podium. Both parties said they would make theirs the greenest convention they've ever held. Living on Earth's Bobby Bascom went to Denver to bring us this story of how the Democrats went green with help from a prominent Colorado Republican. A green convention requires green transportation. So the DNC in Denver provided flex fuel vehicles that run on ethanol, made from beer. When you make beer, you make ethanol. Roger Payne is co-products manager for Coors Brewery in Golden, Colorado. Ethanol, another name for ethyl alcohol, is what gives all alcoholic drinks their kick. Coors has been in business making beer and ethanol since 1873. On a tour of the brewery, Payne explains that brewing beer generates a great deal of ethanol. When you go through the first processes called fermentation, 
For every pound of yeast you put in, you're gonna get three pounds back. So we have begun many years ago to start to process that yeast and dry it. And in the course of drying, you pull out an awful lot of ethanol. All that extra yeast is mixed with waste beer to produce a slurry that looks like soaked bread. After filtering and heating inside a tower of metal tubes, what remains is steam and food grade 200 proof ethanol. It's the same ethanol that's in beer, only in a heck of a lot more concentrated form. We've always said people need to use our products responsibly. We don't want you to drink our beers and products and drive. It's all right for your car to take and drink this product and drive though. At the bottom of the distillation tower is a spigot with a stack of cups next to it. Did you taste? Come on. Uh, so you're literally just pouring this out of the tap and into I a glass? Pour it right out of that tap. This is, oh sure, because it's processing. I mean, it's just finished coming through the still. Just a little taste. It, it's very astringent. It's kind of got a beer essence to it, oh, though. Oh, yeah. That's good, yeah. And that's a wonderful observation because it all comes out of beer. Ethanol that isn't sampled at the spigot gets mixed with a bit of gasoline to avoid a revenue tax and is sold locally. Coors stockpiled 40,000 gallons of ethanol, about 20% of their annual production, to donate to the Colorado Host Committee for the Democratic National Convention. Uh, our fuel-grade ethanol will go right into the uh, 400 or so uh, flex-fuel vehicles that are used to try to really help make this the greenest convention ever. Al Timothy is Vice President of Public Affairs for Coors. Pete Coors, chairman of the Coors Brewing Company, has always been active in politics. In 2004, he ran for the Colorado Senate as a Republican. But Al Timothy says providing the free ethanol isn't a partisan issue. Well, our donation of uh, the fuel-grade ethanol was really an effort to try to um, assist the Denver Host Committee and the Democratic National Committee and to showcase Denver as a really great uh, tourist and destination um, venue. In the past, Denver had problems with particulate matter in the air, and the city is not currently compliant with EPA standards for ground-level ozone. The recycling rate is just 12%, about one-third the rate for other big cities. But Mayor John Hickenlooper sees the DNC coming to town as a catalyst for change. He plans on keeping the 1,000 free bikes brought in for the convention and expanding the program for Denver residents. When the convention was... Um when it was announced it was going to come to Denver, we said, all right, let's make this the greenest convention in history. And the idea was that this would be an investment, would take a lot of time and a lot of energy, but it would be a legacy. So long after the convention left, we would still have a, a green tourism industry. In keeping with the green goals, hot dogs and nachos inside the convention center were served in compostable cardboard containers and corn-based plastic boxes. Every 200 feet or so was a trash area with green bins marked recycle, compost, and landfill. Just in case you're tempted to mix rubbish, the area was guarded by volunteers in green t-shirts. This one, you bought this here, correct? Did, yeah. Okay, then this is completely, com 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 completely com compostable. It's made of corn. A non-corn-based coffee cup ends up in the receptacle marked landfill. And after the convention ended, another group of volunteers sorted all the trash produced to make sure it was properly segregated. In yet another bid to be green, the DNC challenged its 4,400 delegates to offset the carbon produced by their travel. Most delegates chose to donate 750 per person to green energy projects. But Jenny Davidson of Kansas says her delegation chose to donate instead to Greensburg, the Kansas town destroyed by a tornado this year. They have made a strong goal to rebuild that community completely green. So we went ahead and offset our carbon footprints right in Kansas too by donating to Greening Greensburg. Each delegation that met the challenge got a green Obama tag on the sign carrying the name of their state. 
Delegates seem to like the green tinge to the convention, and Mayor Hickenlooper thinks Denver and the DNC could offer some lessons to the GOP convention in Minneapolis. You know, if Minneapolis wants to come and be the Greens convention, come at us. You know, we want, we'll, we'll do everything we can to help you, and then we're going to do everything we can to beat you. For Living on Earth, I'm Bobby Bascom in Denver, Colorado. Coming up, when Western green politics are your family's business, your name is probably Udall. Their story is just ahead on Living on Earth. Support for the Environmental Health Desk at Living on Earth comes from the Cedar Tree Foundation. Support also comes from the Richard and Rhoda Goldman Fund for coverage of population and the environment. And from Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. This is Living on Earth on PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. The Democrats chose Denver for their convention in part because of what they see as a shift in the politics of the mountain regions of the West. No longer is a Democrat a lone maverick in a state like Colorado. In fact, as the issues of water, energy, and the economy grow in importance, Democrats are corralling increasing numbers of voters who have cut themselves out of the Republican herd. Two candidates for the U.S. Senate from Colorado and New Mexico hope to make the most of these trends. Living on Earth's Jeff Young tells us that's not all they have in common. They also share a last name and a family brand of conservation. Four years ago, I spoke with Stuart Udall about the 40th anniversary of the Wilderness Act, which has protected nearly 100 million acres of the country's most treasured landscapes. As Interior Secretary for Presidents Kennedy and Johnson, Udall helped create that act. And he and his brother, the late legendary Arizona Congressman Mo Udall, had a hand in nearly all the landmark environmental laws of the 60s and early 70s. Protecting endangered species, cleaning up the nation's rivers, clean air, clean water, you know. And it was a wonderful time, kind of a golden age of the environmental movement. But Udall wasn't in a mood to celebrate. He thought the political climate had changed such that those environmental achievements would be impossible today. It has become an ideology that more conservation is not good for the country. It makes me sad. I'm a saddened person compared with what I was in the 1960s. But maybe it'll turn. There are cycles in history. Maybe it'll turn again in the direction it was. Now at 88, Stuart Udall is the surviving patriarch of the Udall clan, probably the most storied family in Western democratic politics. And he's watching closely this election year to see if the next generation of Udalls can help bring about that change in direction he talked about. His nephew, Mark Udall of Colorado, and his son, Tom Udall of New Mexico, who won seats in the U.S. House 10 years ago, are both running for the U.S. Senate. My father instilled in me the idea, if you take care of the land, the land will take care of you. That's Tom Udall, New Mexico congressman and candidate for the Senate seat left open by the retirement of Republican Pete Domenici. Udall and his cousin are both strong supporters of clean energy, pushing for renewable electricity standards, higher fuel economy for cars, and earning nearly perfect voting scores from the League of Conservation Voters. 
It's a record in keeping with the family tradition, but one that might be at odds with new public support for increasing the oil supply. It's very important what my father and Mo did. It's a very um, uh, significant legacy, and I appreciate it, and I think the American people appreciate it, and I think they would like us uh, to expand on that. Have, uh, has the concern about energy prices, particularly uh, gasoline prices, made it more difficult for you to maintain a uh, conservation-focused agenda when it comes to energy and, and the environment? There's no doubt that we need to have a strong domestic industry. I, I believe in that, and I uh, support uh, responsible drilling. New Mexico, in fact, is a producer state. We're one of 10 states in the United States that produce energy and export it to other places in America. And uh, that's uh, uh, something that, that uh, I'm proud of, and I'm going to continue to support. But the future is about alternatives. This isn't a, a big quest uh, to do something very ethereal. This is about jobs. This is about the jobs of the future. Most polls show Tom Udall with a comfortable lead over his Republican opponent, Congressman Steve Pierce. But recently, Pierce has gained some ground on the energy issue. Pierce took to the House floor last month to pin the blame for pricey gas on Democrats. I believe in my heart that the majority does not want to drill today. I believe that they are understanding that it is not the oil companies who lack the diligence, but it is instead roadblocks by people who have hijacked the energy policy of this country. A similar dynamic is emerging in the Colorado race, where Republican candidate Bob Schaefer, a former congressman, worked for an energy company that mostly drills natural gas. Schaefer and some pro-drilling groups have hit Mark Udall hard for his opposition to offshore drilling and western oil shale development. Udall stood with extremist groups and voted to block bipartisan energy reforms that could lower gas prices. If some polling shows Schaefer's message getting traction and the race has tightened. Like his cousin, Mark Udall has adjusted his message. He now emphasizes support for domestic drilling as well as alternative energy. At a campaign rally in Fort Collins, he said he'll throw the kitchen sink at the country's energy problems. We need everything. We need oil and gas executives. We just don't need them in the White House, the United States Senate, writing our energy policy. Udall toured a Colorado State University facility that's working on diverse energy solutions, including these bubbling vats of algae that could become an economical source of biodiesel. There's just so many wonderful stories right here in this building and the building across the parking lot. Um, and this is the future right here in front of us. Udall is clearly passionate about renewable energy. At one point, he corners one of the project engineers to tell him about the solar panels on the Udall family home. Later, I asked him the same question I put to his cousin. Will the pressure of high energy prices force him to back down from his conservation goals? No, I, I've been working on this for 12 years. By that I mean a new energy policy for the country. And I've always held we have to do everything. Uh, what's exciting right now is that people are really focused. $4 a gallon gas, people want to do something now. Uh, it's been my motivation for running for the Senate is to continue to lead uh, the country in this direction that includes everything. And I've had to rethink some of my outlook. Like what? Uh, like um, nuclear power, mm, for example. Mm. Uh, I grew up uh, watching what happened at Three Mile Island in the late 70s in Chernobyl, and, and to me the technology was dangerous, could cause great human harm, and was probably one we shouldn't invest in. 
But given the options that we have, and if we're serious about uh, becoming energy self-sufficient in our country and reducing carbon emissions, I think nuclear has to be a part of the mix. In the long run, people know, though, that renewable energy and all the new energy efficiency technologies are the way we have to go. And by that, I mean 100 mile per, hour, per gallon cars, plug-in hybrids, uh, providing incentives for people to trade in their old gas guzzlers for new kinds of vehicle technology. And uh, let's do it. Let's go. Mark Udall and Bob Schaefer are vying for a seat left open by the retirement of Republican Wayne Allard. Allard says Udall, who represents the state's liberal Boulder area, is out of the mainstream for most Coloradans. But the state recently elected a Democratic governor and legislature. Former Colorado Democratic senator and environmental policy expert Tim Wirth says that's largely due to changing attitudes in the region about how people will make their living on the land. Well, there's a very broad shift going on in the Rocky Mountain West, and now the re-resurgence of sort of much more progressive forces who are not involved in extractive industries, but much more involved in attractive industries, you know, attracting people there, managing tourism, managing uh, the use of the land in a very different way. And the two uh, Udall cousins are wonderful forces for change. Both Mark and Tom Udall appear to be hedging their bets a bit, talking up domestic oil production while still pushing the clean energy agenda that seems closer to their core values. And if that doesn't work, Tom Udall says there's always the old family slogan. So when you have these Udalls in Arizona and Colorado and New Mexico, and I say, vote for the Udall nearest you. <laughs> There's a lot of change afoot in the Rocky Mountain West, especially on energy issues. Election Day will tell if the Udall family fits the kind of change voters want. For Living on Earth, I'm Jeff Young in Denver. Okay, so with the Democratic convention going so green, it only makes sense that the hip-hop culture wouldn't be too far behind. And in fact, hip-hop artist DJ Spooky brought his new multimedia performance project from D.C. to the Mile High City stage. Some would say this dude is more of a trip-hop artist, and you can hear why in his work called Terra Nova, an Antarctic Suite. It's made up of field recordings DJ Spooky made in Antarctica. Back home, he manipulated samples and beats to capture what he calls a rapidly changing and vanishing environment under duress. Antarctica to me is a place that's at the edge of the map. It's something that's kind of almost like an invisible point that very few people, you know, literally living will ever go to. When I was thinking about the project, I wanted to think about our DJ culture, contemporary art, and sampling. How do you look at the environment itself as a kind of an archive? And what happens when the archive becomes, you know, part of collective consciousness, which is to me the world we live in. So, um, you know, it's an art project and it's something that is hopefully going to get people to think about different ways of approaching uh, environmental change and managing the human relationship to nature. Throughout the last couple centuries, artists have gone to Antarctica, but the funny thing is film didn't work up until recently um, because the temperatures were so extreme. Um, then uh, cameras also didn't work until basically earlier this century when they were able to figure out some chemical solutions that would work in that extreme temperature. So most of the testimony was either in story, written form, or drawn by hand. So we're looking at a couple decades now of documentation of Antarctica with film, with um, photography, and I wanted to think about that as the stepping point for digital media. 
in the U.S., in the, in the idea of the urban is really defined by concrete. You know, like you're walking, you put one foot in front of the other. You're not expecting the concrete to collapse. So there's a kind of uh, very centered, very, you know, kind of standardized experience of being in the city. There's concrete, there is heat, there's traffic. In this kind of place, all of those variables are removed, and you are the movement. I mean, everything else, there's there's no mammals almost. The only mainland creatures are stuff like seals and, and penguins. And the sound is basically like you're an intrusion. Um, your feet, you, you put one foot in front of the other. You hear the crunch of the ice against your boots. You hear the wind pushing against your clothes and the, the way that your clothes will ripple in the wind is, um, makes its own sound. The, the intense cold, for me at least, wasn't as bad as the water. Like the water temperature is really, really starkly different than anything I'm used to. So if you fall in the water, you die of hypothermic shock within about two to three minutes. So there's a lot of ice, and if you walk in the wrong patch of ice, you could fall, <laughs> fall right through. The whole notion of music for you know social fun, party stuff, I I've tried, but it just didn't feel right. You know, I I, I made a couple tracks for like Antarctica party, you know, <laughs> and it just you know the penguins are looking at me like, what are you doing? You know, it's just. Um, and don't forget, I, I had an outdoor studio I would set up and just kind of, you know, again, like look at the landscape, come up with certain sketches and compositions and see what would, would come out of the process. I guess it's propaganda for change or propaganda for thinking about the world in a different way and saying that there's not just one way. I know that sounds really simple, but you'd be surprised that a lot of my peers in the DJ scene or in youth culture hip-hop, consumerism, bling-bling, people always tend to just look to the immediate, just the next day, the next week. They don't really look to the next 10, 20, 50, 100 years, you know? Right now, I think the biggest question facing everybody is that the planet is really going through a massive change. The film project is to kind of balance and think about art, music, and creative processes and how they can, I think, at least be tools to change people's perception of the environment. That's hip-hop artist DJ Spooky and an earful of his spooky Terra Nova, an Antarctic sweep. Let's go now to Jeff Young in Denver for a wrap-up on the Democratic National Convention. Uh, Jeff, uh, at the end of all of this, uh, what's the takeaway? Oh, Steve, I, I think there were two green headlines, if you will. Uh, one is these interwoven issues we've been talking about, of climate change, uh, energy, security, and the economy. Uh, altogether, that's come fully ripe as an electoral issue. It's, it's no longer on the back burner in American politics, that's for sure. And headline number two, I think, has got to be uh, Senator Obama's embrace of nuclear power in his acceptance speech. That's a pretty big deal. Now, he said, uh, what, we should safely harness nuclear power? That was the line. And uh, I think that will be a challenge to a lot of folks in the environmental community who have opposed nuclear power for a long time and think uh, the very notion of it being safe is, uh, is impossible. 
It shouldn't be that big a surprise. Senator Obama has several times in the course of this campaign uh, indicated that he thought nuclear power might be feasible. And if you look at his home state of Illinois, they get a lot of uh, electricity from nuclear power. And uh, the major provider of that uh, nuclear-generated electricity, the Exelon Corporation, a lot of the executives from that company are major Obama campaign supporters. So now it's on to Minnesota and the Republican convention. What should we expect there? Well, I think you're going to hear a lot of attacks on the Democrats by Republicans uh, pinning the blame for high gas on the donkey, if you will. They want to say, hey, this is Democrats' fault because they have obstructed more drilling. We're going to hear a lot of that. However, you know, Senator McCain has uh, long championed action on climate change and capping carbon emissions. So I'm very curious to see how they're going to try to uh, balance those two things. Now, what does the Republican platform say this year about uh, climate change? Last time around, they didn't think it was necessarily scientifically proven. Well, it's different this time around, and it's uh, much more of a mixed bag. Uh, They do acknowledge the reality of climate change and that humans are contributing to it. However, the platform stops short of uh, recommending a cap on carbon emissions. They propose more oil drilling, but they do not propose in the platform uh, drilling for oil in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge in Alaska. So it's a real mix, and I think it's, uh, you know, it's the Republicans trying to find the right balance that they think is going to appeal to people, much the same way that uh, the Democrats have been. Sounds like both are moving closer to the middle. Well, that, that's certainly the stage of the electoral dance that we are in right now. Uh, they are trying to move to the center to appeal to those very important moderate and independent voters who may very well determine the outcome of this election. Living on there's Jeff Young in Denver. Thanks so much, Jeff. Thank you, Steve. We leave you this week with yet more sounds from Denver. As people walk down the street, the work of audio artist Jim Green greets them, drifting up from the large grates. Living on Earth's Bobby Bascom sampled this unlikely soundscape for us. on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Ashley Ahern, Bobby Bascom, Eileen Belinsky, Bruce Gellerman, Ingrid Lobet, Helen Palmer, Mitra Taj, and Jeff Young, with help from Sarah Calkins and Marilyn Govoni. We bid a fond farewell this week to our awesome interns, Luke Borders, Kim Gittleson, and Jessica Elise Smith. Thank you all for your enthusiasm, intelligence, and hard work, and good luck. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Learish-Dean composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science, and Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt and smoothies. Stonyfield pays its farmers not to use artificial growth hormones on their cows. Details at stonyfield.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners, the Ford Foundation, the Town Creek Foundation, the Oak Foundation, supporting coverage of climate change and marine issues, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, dedicated to the idea that all people deserve the chance to live a healthy, productive life.
information at gatesfoundation.org, and Paxworld Mutual Funds, socially and environmentally sustainable investing. Paxworld for tomorrow. On the web at paxworld.com. PRI Public Radio International.